Isaiah 49, 9 through 11 says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here by your grace. Holy Spirit, I pray that you speak to us this morning through your word. Use me as the means, Lord, to to challenge your saints, to uplift your saints, but ultimately to give you glory. Remove me out of the way, Holy Spirit. Let the people not see me or hear me, but hear and see you. May I not seek the, the, the praise of men, but only the approval of you, Father. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, can you turn to the book of Malachi? <coughs> uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. If you go to Matthew, you go back a few pages... You'll see a white piece of paper, or you might see a paper with some writing, and then you will find Malachi. Malachi. <clears throat> I have a question for each of you. And the question is, have you ever been called a jealous person? Have you ever been called a jealous person? person. Now, when someone calls you a jealous person, when someone says that you are jealous, that might be one of the most offensive things to tell someone. Uh, No one wants to be called a jealous person. In fact, none of us, when we are describing who we are, our characteristics, as you will, none of us will say, I'm nice, I'm funny, I'm outgoing, I'm kind-hearted, but also I'm jealous. Even though we might be that, we will never admit that. Uh, Jealousy, as the Oxford Dictionary, English Dictionary defines, is the feeling or showing an envious resentment of someone or their achievements, possessions, or perceived advantages. How many of you have ever been there? I know I've been there, um, and we can all be this way. When someone gets a promotion at the job site, we start to immediately come up with reasons of why he or she shouldn't have received such promotions and why we should have. You know, I've been with the company longer, longer than they have. Or I'm the one that goes out and gets the coffee for, the, for everyone else. Uh, when someone passes by us, we immediately examine what clothes they're wearing and what car they drive. And if they have something that we want, we start to become envious of, envious of that person. We, we come up with reasons of why that person has that particular thing that we want and why we don't. One last example, and it's also something that I see a lot, is when someone is talking good about themselves, we immediately come up with something good to say about ourselves. We begin to become jealous or envious of he or she's achievements, and the only way to buffer what they're saying is by pointing out what we have achieved. You know, some of you parents, when you tell your, uh, your girlfriends or, or when you tell your guy friends, hey, my, my, my student got student of the month, you immediately say, well, my student's been on the honor roll for four years. You know, um, jealousy is, is dangerous. It, it can ruin friendships, it can ruin marriages, but also it can ruin individual lives. For the Christian, we are commanded in Scripture not to be envious or jealous in any manner. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its any way. Or it is not resentful. The way we love is not to be a, a boastful, envious type of love, but is to be one that comes from a pure heart. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves the way we the way we deal with our friends is not to is not is not a relationship that is what i can get from you it's a relationship that's built on love and lastly james 3 14 and 16 says but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts do not boast 
and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Now, now that's what the Bible says about us. Who we are not to be in Christ. Uh, we are, we, we are not to be jealous of this world and anything that's in this world. And the reason why we are not to be jealous, the main reason is because we have, we have all the riches of the triune God in Jesus Christ. That is why we shouldn't be jealous of anything in this world. However, with saying that, there is one thing that we all should be jealous for. In saying that, yes, we shouldn't be jealous of earthly things and earthly desires, right? However, there is something that I think is okay to be jealous for. And that thing is the very thing that God is jealous for. God is jealous for his glory. And because God is jealous for his glory, we should be jealous for his glory as well. The the same jealousy that we have toward others and the things that they want and the things that we desire is the same jealousy that we should have to see God's name to be praised. In other words, we should not give glory to anything else but to God. And we should desire for God to receive nothing else but the complete best, which is all of us, our our fullness, who we are. We shouldn't be jealous for anything in this world, but we are to be jealous for God's namesake. We are not to be jealous for earthly things, but we should be jealous for spiritual things. What we should be jealous for has nothing to do with us has nothing to do with what we desire, but has everything to do with God and what he desires and his will. We should have a jealousy within us that burns for the glory of God. As we come to the book of Malachi, particularly in our passage this morning, we see a people whose passion for God's glory is no longer being displayed. They had a passion for God's glory. They had a jealousy for God's glory. But now that glory, that jealousy for that glory is starting to fade off. It's starting to grow dim. To do a little bit of recap, if you remember from our short introduction to the book of Malachi, Malachi is a book that's written to a group of post-exilic Jews, uh, a group of Jews who were in exile from Babylon, in Babylon. But with the blessings from the Persian king Cyrus, they are allowed to go back to their homeland. As they come back to their homeland, they begin to rebuild their temple. Uh, They reinstitute the priesthood. They are offering up sacrifices on a daily basis. They are worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. However, however, there's a problem in all their external things that they think that they're doing right. Their priesthood is corrupt. Their sacrifices are not pure and holy. Their temple has no glory. And they are marrying outside of the covenant. So it's been 70 years since these Jews have come back to their homeland. And as the book of Malachi is written, what we see is a people who are frustrated and who have grown bitter and who have grown cynical toward God. I want to remind you, as we move to the book of Malachi, I want you to imagine that you are in a courtroom. And God is bringing charges against his people, Israel. And God, in the first five verses of Malachi, opened his prosecution with fatherly affection and tender love. He says in verse 2 of Malachi chapter 1, I have loved you. He opens, he opens his rebuke of, of, of these Israelites by first declaring his love for them. I have loved you. And look at the people's response. How have you loved us? Israel really doesn't think God loves them. So they issue a challenge to God, and God says his love by, and, and, and God demonstrates his love for them by first Taking them up, taking them on, um, then taking them up on their challenge, and he demonstrates his love in in two ways. If you remember, he sets he demonstrates his love to Israel by first choosing Jacob rather than Esau, right? Esau was the one who was was the firstborn, the one who the blessings and the love of God should have went to first. Rather, God chose the less deserving one of the two. Mind you, both were undeserving, but if you would think technically speaking. Jacob was the lesser worthy of the two. And God chose to love Jacob rather than Esau. And second, and the second way he demonstrated his love toward Israel is by destroying all the descendants of Esau. Edom. The first proclamation was, I have loved you. The first prosecution was, I have loved you. God reminds Israel of his unchanging and perfect love for them. 
And now he's going to present his second prosecution to Israel. The first prosecution was, I have loved you. The second one is this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If them I am a father, where is my honor? I, I, I have set my love upon you. I have chose you. I've given you everything of me. And in spite of that love, you have chose to dishonor me. What we're going to see in these verses this morning is Israel is not giving glory to honor and honor to God the way they ought to. The people, as a result of their of their bitterness and anger towards God, are no are no longer honoring God and giving God what he's rightly due. All glory, respect and praise. In a nutshell, what we see in these verses this morning is God is not being taken serious. And when God is not being taken serious, then there will be serious consequences. That, that's, that's Malachi chapters 1, uh, verses 6 and 14 through in chapter 2 on on. All of this, friends, is out of love. If he, he, he proclaims his love to them in the first chapter. And he says, in spite of this great love that I have for you, look how you're treating me. Look how you're honoring me. Look how you're glorifying me. To help us think through our passages this morning, I got three points I would like for us to consider. The first is God is jealous for his glory. God is jealous for his glory. The second, the priests despise God's glory. And the third is God will be glorified amongst the nations. Three points. God is jealous for his glory. The priests despise God's glory. And God will be glorified amongst the nations. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Malachi chapter 1. Verses 6 through 14, and then we are going to cover chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The word of the Lord says this, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. He will show, will he show favor to any of us, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who will shut the doors that you may not kindle fire in my all my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting it, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this, and this you shall bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat, who has a male in his flock, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to, and sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Malachi chapter 2. Now, now, and now, O priest, this command is for you. And if you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, and dung on your offerings. And you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this, this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave to them him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and, he, and no wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned away, and he turned many from iniquity. 
For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instructions. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make, I make you despise and abase before all the people, insomuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. That is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's first look at how God is jealous for his glory. God is jealous for his glory. Glory is a word that we often hear and that we often use. We say in our prayers, God, may you receive glory. We say things like everything is done for God's glory. We even get it tattooed on us, Sola de Gloria. For the glory of God alone. But have you ever stopped and asked, what does that word glory actually mean? What do we say when we, when we say, God, may you receive glory? What does it mean for God to be glorious? God's glory is a concept that we all have an awareness of, yet without necessarily being able to describe it in its fullness. What does glory mean? And particularly, what, is, what does it mean as it pertains to God. The word glory usually deals with weightiness or substance. When the Old Testament declares that God's name is glorious, as it says in 1 Chronicles 29.13, it is ascribing weight or importance to his name. Basically, the meaning is that God possesses supreme gravitas. Nothing is more important or greater than he is, and no one deserves more honor than he does. God's glory conveys, conveys God's infinite, intrinsic worth. God's name is connected to his glory. And his name, Yahweh, is weighty. It's intrinsically or naturally worthy of all praise and honor. Your name is not intrinsically worthy. Your name is not naturally worthy, right? God's name is naturally worthy. It's naturally weighty. Someone in your family line had to make your name worthy. Someone from your family line had to make your name uh, as great as it, is to, as it is today. Someone from your family line had to make your name glorious. God's name is just glorious because God's name is connected to his being. Does that make sense? Um, we think of celebrities, the Kennedys, the Obamas. Uh, the Trumps, and we, we, we talk about them, we talk about them um, as weighty, right? And, but when we talk about them, it's something that they have done, right? It's something that they have done that has made their name weighty. That's not the case with God. God doesn't have to do anything to make himself, to make his name glorious and weighty. God is already glorious and weighty. What we see in our verse this morning is God's name is no longer seen is no longer viewed, is no longer perceived as weighty and glorious in the eyes of his people. Look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. God, God's name is being seen as common. God, God's name is being viewed as unimportant. And, and we have to ask, well, what's the big deal about a name? I mean, why does God care so much about his name? Yes, yes, God's name connects to his being, but we also have to understand that in those days, a name stood for a person's character. A name stood for a person's dignity. A name stood for a person's honor. A person's name, a person's name came invested with meaning and importance. Some of you, when you were children, might have, some of you, might, when you were children, uh, or when you have your child, um, might have described uh, the meaning of their name to them. You might have sat them down and told them, hey, the meaning of your name is this, the meaning of your name is, is that. And some of us are named after certain people because of how special that person was. Now, some of us are named after an important person because of what that person did, the, the, the noble things and the worthy things that that person did. The point is this. We choose names to have some purpose in view. When my mother chose my name, she had some type of purpose in view. I don't know what that is, but she had some type of purpose in view. However, 
in our times, our name doesn't really stand for who we are. Some of us, some of us are offended when someone says something about, about our name, but sometimes, but many of us don't really care, right? God's name, however, cares because God's name stands for his person. God's name stands for his character. His name reflects who he is. The issue that's going on in Malachi's day is the people, as well as the priests, were not taking into account the worth of God's name. Again, verse 6, God says, A son honors his father. If then I am a father, where is my honor? Here God names himself a father. And God is, is proper in describing himself as a father. Because he was a father to these Israelites. Back in verse 2, remember, God says, I have loved Jacob. He set his love upon Jacob, which means God adopted Jacob into his family. And by adopting Jacob, God adopts Israel. Because as you remember, um, all Israelites are descendants of Jacob. So, so God was a father to these Israelites. And what we see in the Old Testament, God views himself as a father to Israel. Hosea 11.1 1 says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel his firstborn son. So what we see is, when the people came out of Egypt, God was, in a sense, adopting them as his son. God was Israel's father, and Israel was God's son. However, oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see the son disobeying and dishonoring their father's name. And, and that's what's happening here. The people who bear their father's name no longer are representing their father in a worthy and noble manner. Maybe some of you can relate to that. When I was a child, oftentimes my brother and my mother would remind me that I needed to act in a certain way. That I needed to, I needed people to perceive me in a certain way. That I needed to present myself in a manner that doesn't discredit my last name, Rugnow. Why? Because I am not only representing my family, but I'm also representing my father whom I derive my last name from. And as a child, I tried my hardest to, to honor my father and obeying him and not acting too crazy. Israel at this point in history no longer sees God as father. They're not honoring God as a son honors his father. They're no longer, they're no longer seeing God's name as worthy as they, they are no longer, they no longer have to worship him in a worthy manner because they don't think that God is worthy of that. God, God, is, God is no longer seen as a father. If anything, he's seen as a bad father. And it's not as if Israel didn't know that sons should honor their father. It's plain that, that sons should honor their father, that servants should honor their masters. And what God is saying is, is, is if sons honor their fathers, then how much more are you to honor me? That's what he's saying. Since sons obey, respect, honor, treat their father's name as weighty, then how much more are creatures to give to their creator? We, we know this. When, when an employee, when a, when employee talks back to their employer, we look at them strange. Uh, when you see, when you see a little girl talking back to their mother, we look at that as that shouldn't be right. That's just, that's just the, the nature of life, right? That's, that's, how, that's, that's how things are supposed to be. God made Israel. He loved Israel. He chose Israel. He brought them out of Egypt. He gave them his name to bear. He gave them a land. He came into covenant with them, yet they despise his fatherhood. He, God has all of the credentials for Israel to honor God, but yet they are not honoring God. And when you despise who God is, then you are despising God's name. They are not regarding the weightiness of God's glory and honor. Friends, God will not allow his glory and his honor to be tampered with or regarded as worthless and unimportant. He will not allow his people to view his name irrelevant because God has a passion for his glory and his name to be magnified. Israel is not jealous for God's glory. However, God is jealous for his glory. The reason why God created the world was to display his glory. 
John Calvin would say, the world is a theater where God's glory is always on display. The aim of scripture, or as 17th century theologians would call it, um, scope of scripture, the scope of scripture was for God's glory to be displayed in the redemptive work of his son, Jesus Christ. The grand theme of creation is God's glory. The grand theme of scripture is God displaying his glory through his son, Jesus Christ. The point is this, everything God does is for his glory. God is jealous for his glory. He says in Exodus 4, uh, chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. He says in Ezekiel thirty nine twenty five, Now I restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. Mind you, why, will he, why is he restoring Jacob? Why is he having mercy on the whole house of Israel? For his name's sake. For nothing, for nothing in them but his own. For his own, for his own goodwill and pleasure, for his own glory and honor. He says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, I will not give to another. Amen. The, the point of these verses is this. God is jealous for his glory. And since God's name is connected to his glory, then his name will be exalted highly among the nations. His jealousy doesn't grow out of insecurity, anxiety, frustration, covetedness, uh, pride, or spite. That's how your jealousy, that's where your jealousy comes from. Your jealousy comes from envy, from, from being envious and being insecure about yourself and being frustrated and being prideful. That's where your jealousy comes from. However, God's jealousy does not grow out of those things. God's jealousy is the natural and necessary byproduct of his absolute sovereignty and infinite holiness. That's where God, that's where God, uh, that's where his jealousy grows out of. Friends, it would be wrong if God wasn't jealous for his glory. Saints, I know this is not something that we are taught as little boys and girls I know this is not something that's popular to preach in, in, in pulpits uh, across the world. And, but, but, and, the, and the reason why it's not popular, the reason why we don't teach it is because we don't want God to be primarily concerned about himself. We want God to be concerned with us and our happiness. Friends, if God wasn't concerned for his own namesake and glory, then you will never find everlasting happiness in this world or the one that's to come. You, you will never find happiness in this world if God wasn't obsessed with his own namesake and with his glory. God finds supreme delight in glorifying himself, and he bids us to come and enjoy that supreme delight by obeying and glorifying him. Mind, if God finds supreme happiness in glorifying himself, then what type of happiness is that? I want that happiness. I, I, need to, I need that happiness in my life. And the only way I can have that happiness is by glorifying God is by exalting him on high as John, or as we can say it the way John Piper puts it, God is most glorified us when we are most satisfied in him. You want ultimate satisfaction in God? Then glorify him. Our ultimate satisfaction and pleasure in life is when we have a, a jealous obsession with seeing God's name and glory honored and adored. Now you might say, well, I thought, well, the thought of God having a jealous passion for his glory doesn't sound like a God who is loving, but it sounds like a God who is self-centered. Friends, this would be only self-centeredness if God's name wasn't worthy of such glory and honor. Friend, God is the only one who can, who can justly be right in being self-centered. You, you can't be self-centered because your name is not worthy. You can't get away with saying, all peoples on the earth will give me glory and praise. You can't command something like that because your name is not worthy. Your name is unhonorable. Saints, let me help you with your doctrine of God. Last week we talked about the doctrine of God's love. Let me, let me just speak a little bit about God himself. God burns hot with zeal for God. God loves God. God loves himself above all others. And you might say, well, that sounds cold. Friends, God would be an idolater if God didn't burn hot for God. 
If God didn't love himself above all others, then God would be giving glory and honor to something above himself. Then, that, that, something other, that something other than God is, is worthy for God to love. If God didn't love himself with a perfect and unchanging love, God would have to look outside of his own deity, of his own divinity. Saints, if God didn't love himself and his own glory and commanded others to glorify him, then he would be unworthy of his own divinity. He would be unworthy to be of his own deity. He would be unworthy of his own godness. Basically, if God didn't love himself, then there's no need for God to be God. That's what that means. Friends, this is what you need to teach to your kids. Yes, speak about sovereignty. Yes, speak about the love of God, but speak about who God is. And the only way you will ever find happiness in this world is through Jesus Christ and glorifying his son. God's son. God is jealous to see his name glorified and highly esteemed. Why? Because he's worthy of it. Because he's worthy of it. That's the only explanation that you need. This is the first point that we have to understand. That God's name reflects his being. And when you start, tam- when you, when you start to tamper with God's name, then you are tampering with God. God is jealous for his glory. He is jealous for his name to be great. But Israel doesn't seem to think that God's name is glorious. And instead of giving glory to God's name, they despise God's name, which leads to our second point. The priests despise God's glory. The priests despise God's glory. In the Old Testament, the priests had a particular role in the nation of Israel. The priests were men who were set apart from the rest of the community, in order to carry out certain duties that associated with worship sacrifice that took place in the temple. God says in chapter 2, the lips of the priest should guard uh, knowledge. The priests also function as mediators of God's presence. And at the time of the writing of Malachi, the priests were no longer fulfilling their duties as mediators of God's presence. They were no longer guarding the knowledge of God. The people were despising God's name, and the priests slowly followed behind. Now, in the book of Malachi, what we see, well, in the book of Malachi, what exactly are the priests and the people doing in despising God's name? How exactly are they despising God's name? You've been hearing that they're not honoring God's name, and they're not, they're not giving God what he is rightly due, but how are they necessarily doing that? They are despising God's name by offering up sacrifices that are not holy and pure. They are despising God's name by offering up half-hearted worship to God. Look again at verse 6. God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Again, they're talking back to God. That seems like a reoccurring theme, right? Jonah talked back to God. His Israelites talked back to God. The priests are saying, how, God, how have we honored, how have we not honored you? How, God, how have we not shown you respect that you deserve? I mean, God, you know all things, right? You declare the end from the beginning. Check the record books. Didn't we go to the temple every day? Don't we offer burnt offer, uh, sacrifices and grain offerings to you? We gave you and are continually to give you what you deserve. How, how, have you, how can you have anything against us? How can you even have the audacity to say that we are despising your name? That doesn't make sense. The people and the priests can't accept this accusation. And... and can't you sense a bit of hostility and, and sarcasm in their response to God? And in many ways, their response here to God is the same response that they gave to God and, and, and God can, uh, concerning God's love for them. Remember, God said, I have loved you. What is the response? How have you loved us? God, you don't really love us. And if you do love us, then prove it. Here, God's saying, you have despised my name. And they're saying, how? How have we despised your name, God? What the people are really saying is, Prove to us how we, how we have despised your name. 
show us, give us examples of how we have despised your name. In one sense, they're saying, God, you're a liar. We aren't despising your name. We, we go to the temple every day and, and, and sacrifices and grain offerings are being offered up. How are we despising your name? Look at God's uh, reply to them in verse 7. The priest asks how we are despising your name. Look at verse 7 and 8. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals a sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? God's charge against these priests is that they are offering polluted food upon the altar. And the priest's response reveals how they view God's name. They say, how have we polluted you? Yeah, we're offering polluted food upon the altar, but how is that dishonoring you? How is that showing dishonor to you? They understand that the, the food that's being presented to the altar, the sacrifices that are being presented, were to display God's name and his worth. And when they say that, how, how yes, we admit that we are offering polluted food upon the altar, but, but how is that showing you disrespect? In many ways, what the priests are saying is the polluted food are, necess- are a necessary offering for a polluted God. That's what they're saying. Saying, yes, we are offering polluted food, but, but aren't you worthy of that? You're, you're worthy of, of our second best. They think that by offering polluted food upon the altar, that they are rightly just. Because since God is fulfilling his promises, then, then we will not offer the best food to God. However, the offering of the polluted food doesn't, doesn't show that God's polluted. What it shows is their hearts are polluted. When we, when, when we sin, when we are wrapped up in our sin, sin causes us. Sin turns our world upside down and causes us to do things that are irrational. Remember when Jonah was speaking, about, speaking to God and he said, God, it's better if I just die now. You know, remember Jonah was caught up in his sin and caused, him to, and caused his sin caused him to say things that he really didn't necessarily mean. Same thing is happening here. Their sin is causing them to, to look at God in a different view and say things to God that they know that's not true. But in their rebellion and their bitterness to God, it's almost as if they have to say those things because they're so caught up in their flesh and sin. Here is where we see the true attitude and heart disposition of the people and the priest toward God. And friends, there is no justification for this. What the priests are doing is wrong, and God brings that out in verse 8. Look at verse 8, look at verse 8, if you will. When you bring blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? Offering sacrifices that are sick and lame was indeed an evil thing. Deuteronomy 17.1 says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish or any defect, whatever. For that is an abomination to the Lord your God. What does that mean? When you offer those sacrifices to God, that means that you hate God. That's what, that's, that's what that means. Leviticus 22.22 says, Animals blind or disabled or having any discharge or any itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as an offering to the altar. One quick point. That really hit me because I can never present myself as a sacrifice to God. Yes, I am sinful, but man, our bodies have scars and scabs all over us. Praise be to the Lord. The people knew that sacrifices were to be holy and without blemish. Only pure and holy sacrifices were to be offered to the Lord. And, the, and this is the thing. The priests were the ones who were to inspect the sacrifices and check if the animal was indeed without blemish, and was indeed pure. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the thing about these priests and what they are doing. And, and that's, how, that's how evil and sinful they are. The people in many ways counted on the priests to make a noble judgment when sacrifices were being offered up. And the problem in Malachi's day is the people are offering unpure sacrifices to God, and the priests are letting them get away with it. And as a result, God says in chapter 2, verse 8, But you have turned aside from your way, and you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. 
it's almost the, the whole nation depends on these priests. These sacrifices were to be peace offerings to God. They were to be sin offerings. And what the priests are doing is when they're accepting these, these, these lame and sick animals, what they're doing is they are winking at the people's sin. They're saying is, yes, these sacrifices are acceptable, are acceptable to God. That God is okay with your second best. The people are offering blind and sick animals and the priests are accepting those sacrifices as worthy and honorable to the Lord. Friends, the whole point of the priesthood was to administer and regulate proper, proper worship to God. What my job here, what Pastor Job, Antonio, and Pastor uh, um, John's job is to regulate proper worship to God. And when you come here, you expect worship to be regulated by what the Bible and how the Bible prescribes. It's almost as if you come here and we're just doing whatever we want. I wouldn't be a good minister. I wouldn't be a good mediator of God's presence. The whole purpose for building, for the building of the temple was to worship God with whole heart by offering up pure and holy sacrifices because God is pure and holy. However, now the temple is not, is not where God's name is glorified. It's a place where God's name is spit on and mocked. Mind you, that's relevant for our, in our church today because in many churches, churches are not where God's name is glorified. Churches are where God's name is spit on and mocked because they are worshiping a false God. The pure and holy sacrifices were to be a reflection. How we worship God is, is, is to be a reflection of who he is. God is holy. His name is worthy. So it's only right that we offer the best. However, the people are offering polluted food and blemished sacrifices. And in many ways, what they're saying is this sacrifice is, is what we think about your name, God. This sacrifice, this lame sacrifice, this, this animal that has broken bones and that is sick and has scabs and marks on it, this is how we view you. That's what they're saying. Friends, God will not stand for such wickedness. In chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, God warns the priests of their sins. He says, if you don't take heart to what I'm telling you, I will send the curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your, and the dung on your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Essentially, what God is saying is, 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 is if you priests continue to despise my name before the people, I'm going to despise yours before the nation's. That's what he's saying. Friends, we need to take hearts to this because we are also a kingdom of priests. This is not just limited to just Israel and their priestlyhood, but this is us as well. If we offer sacrifices that are not worthy to God, then God is going to rub our worthy, our unworthy sacrifices in our face. He says he's going to curse their children. And then, and then he says this. Then he's going to spread the dung from the animals in their faces. When people would offer sacrifices to the Lord, they, w- they would have to take out the nasty stuff in the animal, and they would throw it out somewhere else. What he's saying is, I'm going to take that stuff that you throw out, and I'm going to spread it on your face, and I'm going to spread it on your play religion. And also, too, you're going to go away with it. That's what God's saying. If you despise my name, that's what will happen to you. God is not playing when it comes to how we worship him. God is not playing when it comes to his glorification, and how we are to view him and, why, and how we are to honor him. God wasn't playing in the Old Testament and God's not playing now. Take that to heart. Again, the problem in the book of Malachi is not the people are worshiping false gods. That's not the problem. It's their worship to God is done half-heartedly. The people have all the forms of our religion going for them. The temple is there. The sacrifices are there. The priests are there. However, their religion is dead. Israel has all the externals checked off. However, they just forgot to check their heart. And quite honestly, their externals are not even worthy and honorable. God will all go on and say, just shut the whole thing down. Just shut the, just, just shut the whole place down. And, God, and guys, honestly, if we're not offering sacrifices, if we're not offering worship that's worthy to God, then we shouldn't even come to this building and worship him. It's better if we don't. It's better if we all just stay home and just and, and rather than play God and play religion. 
I hope you take the second point to heart, guys, because we all too, we can be this way. We all, none of us are exempt from this. We all have worshiped God in a half-hearted manner. We all have not given God what he is properly due. We can think that our church attendance, our hymn singing, our prayer attendance is enough. We can check off the externals and go through, go through all the pageantry of religion and go through all the motions without without our hearts being in it. God doesn't want your church attendance and hymn singing without your heart inflamed for his glory and honor. Mind you guys, God doesn't even want your hymn singing and church attendance if you're, if you're, not, if you're not properly worshiping him. God would rather have your heart than have you sing Rock of Ages half-heartedly. God wants your whole heart than rather you sit there and yawn and, 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 and wait and wait for, for me to get done and, and, and think about what you're going to do after this. God, that's not, that's, not, that's not proper worship to God. That's not proper worship to God. Don't think just because you have all the externals checked off that God is, that God is happy with your praise. Because you go to the women of the word, because you go to the race, because you go to these things that you are okay in fact, those things can, can do you more harm than good if your heart is truly not in it. If you are focused more on people perceiving you in a certain way, in a certain manner than how God perceives you. Friends, we can play church all day and we can have a reputation for being alive and we can fool ourselves into thinking that our church works indicates that we lo- truly love God when actuality, our hearts are not even in it. We are just going through the motions. Amen. We can be like the church of Sardis and Lord, God forbid that we, we never will be there. In Revelation 3, God says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Don't think that you are exempt from that. Matthew 7, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Many of those external things are lawlessness, are evil in the sight of God when your heart is not truly in it. Friends, our church works do not indicate, oh, they don't always indicate that you are alive. In some cases they do, but it could very well be all for show. The people are presenting half-hearted sacrifices to God. This was Israel's crisis, and this could be ours as well. God really drives home the point at verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? In, in other words, he's saying this. You give less of a, would you give less of a tax that you owe to your Persian overseers? Would Persia smile at you if you were to offer them lame and sick animals? No. You give the full measure to your pagan governors. You honor Persia more than you honor me. Friends, the best of us is not to be given to this world or to this civil magistrate. Our primary, our primary and, and fundamental allegiance is to our Father who is in heaven. Many times in this world, we often think that this world is all that we have. We think that we, our allegiance is to this world and to this earthly system. Yes, pay your taxes and be a good citizen. However, don't forget that you've been brought out of a kingdom of darkness, darkness and placed into a kingdom of light. Your allegiance is to God. Your allegiance is to his glory, not to the world's glory and to what the world offers you as glorious and honorable. He says, you wouldn't give that to Persia. Why are you giving it to me? I was watching a basketball game last night and I was so into it. When I play my video game, I'm so into it. However, oftentimes, I can, oftentimes when, when we are singing hymns and, and when I have to come to church and preach, I have to wrestle with my heart. And, I, and I'm saying that as an example for myself because that is you as well. We put more of our, of our worship and more of our physical bounty into worldly things than we do to God. 
Never let it never be so. Don't give this don't give this world the don't give this world the don't don't let this world have preeminence in all things. That's what I'm saying. Let, let Christ have preeminence in everything that we do. Amen. Israel didn't understand the allegiance that they owe to God. The people come to the temple every day, which is only a shadow of the one that stood in Solomon's day. God has not filled his temple with his glory like he did in the former days of Israel. And in their minds, they're thinking God has not come through on his promises. So why, why do we have to give our best to God? We can think that way. Persia is actually giving, treating us better than God. So we should honor Persia more than we honor God. Never let it, never let it be so. Look at how God describes their attitude in verse 13. But you say, what a weariness it is, and you snort at it. The people have grown tired of offering sacrifices to God. They are, the, thought, the very thought of giving God all glory and honor wearies them. When they, when they go to the tent, when they wake up and they have to present their sacrifices to God, this is what they do. I've got to go to the temple again. I've got to go worship God again. It's a weariness. They're, they're tired of it. Saints, we, we can be this way also. I gotta, go, I gotta wake up. Gotta get the kids going. Gotta, gotta go to church. I gotta go to prayer. I have to read my Bible. I have to live in light of the glory of God. I have to do all things for the glory of God. We can be that way. We can, we can snort at the idea of worshiping God. Friends, worshiping God and giving him our all can be an inconvenience to us at times when our hearts are not fully in it. Have you ever worked longer than you should have? That was an inconvenience, right? When you had to work that extra hour or two, that was an inconvenience, yet you did it. Friends, the same, the same applies here. You th- when you do those extra hours in work, you work because it is, it is worthy for you to work. Because by you working, you get an extra $20 or whatever. God is worthy for you to go the extra mile. God is worthy of those sacrifices. God is worthy of yourself. Don't snort at, don't snort at, at the thought of worshiping God and giving God all honor and, and praise and coming to church. The sacrifices that are being offered to God, I think, have a, have a greater significance here. And, and there is something deeper theologically at stake here. Yes, offering blind animals and sick animals to, to the Lord is an evil thing, but there is something deeper theologically at stake. When God in the Old Testament required the best sacrifices, it was to reflect who he is. He, was only worthy, he is only worthy of the best and most pure and holy animals. However, something else was at work in those pure and animal sacrifices that were being presented. Yes, they were reflecting who God is. But when God required the best of animal sacrifices, the sacrifices themselves were types and shadows of his son, Jesus Christ. You guys remember types and shadows? You know, your shadow is a type of you. It's not, it's not the, the full uh, substance of who you are. It's actually pointing to who you are, right? Those sacrifices were pointing to the perfect lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world, the spotless lamb that would come and redeem his people from a slave market of sin. The pure and holy, unblemished sacrifices pointed to the one who was to come, who was pure and holy and unblemished. Israel is offering blemished sacrifices to God, but when God offers a sacrifice, does he present anything less than the best? When it was time for God to offer a sacrifice... Did he bring to us, did he offer up something that was lame and sick, that had broken bones? Mind you, Christ's bones wasn't broken. God offered a spotless lamb. Not one with broken bones or one who was sick and lame, but one who was perfect, holy and spotless. Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. And when Christ went to that sacrificial altar at Golgotha, 
What Christ laid down was, what Christ laid down on that cross was the most perfect humanity that ever existed. Christ didn't snort at the cross. When, when Christ viewed the cross, he didn't say, I'm not going there. Oh my gosh, I have to go there. He embraced the cross. He didn't, when Christ didn't, Christ didn't go off to, in Jerusalem and find another, find a substitute. He didn't go off and find another sacrifice. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Even in the most difficult time in Christ's life, he didn't lose sight of the glory of God. Rather, he became jealous for God's glory. Sharing in the lighting and the glory that he has with his father was the joy that was set before him. Friends, in difficult times, what will get you through is the glory of God and seeing all things through the lens of his glory. Yes, the Holy Spirit is what is what helped and guided our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the thing that was that was set before his eyes was the glory that he will share once he gets off of that cross. Once he once he goes into that tomb. That I will be once again reconciled with the glory that I had with my father before the foundation of the world. In difficult times, we, we don't, don't look to the world. Look, don't look to the world's glories. Look to the fa- our Father who is in heaven and glorifying Him in all things. And just the same Spirit that, that guided and, and, and helped Christ through the most difficult times in His life is the same Spirit that indwells in you that will help you. Don't lose sight of God's glory. No, we don't offer animal sacrifices today in the new covenant. Praise be to God. We look to and place our faith in Jesus Christ, who was the perfect sacrifice. However, that doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation to God. Yes, we trust in Christ, who was the perfect sacrifice, and we rest in him for our salvation. However, the Bible also tells us that we as members of the new covenant, that we as believers who the Father has united to his Son and given us his Spirit, we are to offer ourselves as pleasing sacrifices to the Lord. You guys see the link there? Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is your spiritual worship? By offering up yourself, offering up all of you, not because you're trying to earn your salvation, but because you are pleasing, you are pleasing God and you are honoring, offering yourself in light of what he has done for you. It is only right. It is only worthy. God offered his best. We offer ourselves. We do not present our body. How, how do we present our bodies as a living sacrifice? How do we do this? One answer by giving every ounce of our mind, body, and soul and heart to the glorification of God's name. That's how we do it. By loving and obeying God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. When the, when the, when the Bible says your strength, that means your physical bounty, your muchness, all of you. All of you. God doesn't want the half of your whole body. He wants all of it. Yes, you come tired of God, but man, drink a Red Bull before you come. Drink some coffee. Yes, yes, you get tired and you don't want to read. Drink something. That's... I don't take some caffeine pills. That's what it means to present yourself as a holy sacrifice. That's what it means to present your body. That's what it means to love God with all of your strength. With all of your mind, heart, and soul. God will not share his glory with with this world. God requires all of our praise and all of our worship. And he is the only one that can get away with that. John Calvin said this. God requires not mere ceremonies of those who serve him, but he is satisfied only with, with sincerity of the heart, with faith and holiness of life. God doesn't care about your rituals. God cares about your heart. God cares about the holy life that you are living. God is not glorified in simple outward religious practices, but he delights in the, in the person who offers sincere devotion to God in obedience. He sets his face in the light on those who offer their heart and seek to glorify him in all things. 
Saints, don't hold back your heart and the fullness of what you are from God. That's what I'm trying to say. Let us have a jealous passion to see God's name be glorified. Now God is going to point out, point to these points, point to these Israelites a day when they, when all peoples will sing his praises. Why should we give glory to God? Because they're gonna, there's gonna come a day when we all will give glory to God. And mind you, you will give glory to God whether you are rejoicing with him in the new heavens and the new earth or whether you are in hell. You will give glory to God. Whether you are giving glory to God by the lifting up your hands or by the screaming agony that you may feel in hell. God will get glory. Let's move on to our last point. That is God will be glorified amongst the nations. God will be glorified amongst the nations. In spite of Israel's insufficient worship to God, God's promise is a day when Nations all over this earth will glorify and give proper worship to God. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He then repeats himself at the last half of verse 14 of chapter 1. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared amongst the nations. Charles Spurgeon says, if we live in sympathy with God, then we delight in hearing, we delight when God says, I am God and there is none other. If we live in the, in the light of the glory of God, we delight, we take pleasure, we say amen, we lift our hands, we clap, we do all the things of, of all the outward signs of praise when we hear that my name will be glorified amongst the nations. That is... That is what should burn our soul. That's what, that's what should inflame our hearts. Israel might have thought that God's glory started and ended with them. Just like, remember when Jonah, when Jonah thought that only salvation was for the Israelites, right? And when God says, no, you're going to go to Nineveh. Israel thought the same thing, that only, only we are to glory, only we are the proper, uh, recipient, only we are the proper ones who are to, are to worship God and to glorify God. Only people who are amongst the nation of Israel are the ones who are to worship and honor God. They had a local deity view of who God is. Or only people from the nation of Israel can worship and glorify the one true God, Yahweh. Here God promises a future day when the praise of his glorious name will not be limited to the nation of Israel. But his name will be sung and glorified from peoples all across this world. He says in Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. My glory will be across the world. He says in Isaiah 60, verses 2 and 3, For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and the deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. In the Psalms, countless times you read of the praises we are to give to God, as his glory shines all over the earth. The point is this. You that are from Israel... Members of Reformation Bible Church, God's glory doesn't start and end with you. You, you don't, you are not in the middle of God, of God and His glory. But in spite of you, God will get glory. And if He doesn't get glory from you, He will get it from someone else. God's glory doesn't start and end with you. And one day, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will all in one accord recite Psalms 57.5, be exalted, O God. Above the heavens, let your glory be all over the earth. Israel, you despise my name now. You spit on my name now. You snort at my name now. But one day, and that day is approaching soon, my name will be great and feared amongst the nations. Saints, God is jealous for his glory. The question is, will you now align yourself with his will and be jealous to see his name be glory, glorified and revealed, revered in your life and throughout the world? Amen. Don't you want that? Don't you want to don't you want to be one of those voices that is giving glory to God in the last day? Don't you want that? Don't you desire that? Those are the things that we should long for. 
Saints, if you want to be a part of this glorious kingdom that God is building, you need, if you want joy that is everlasting, that is, that is satisfying, not just for a temporal moment, but forever, then bring, then bring your heart to God and glorify Him in all that you do. Mind you guys, I'm not telling you to do better. Yes, we can do better, but I'm not primarily saying you need to do better. We don't go, we don't go to God and say, sorry God, I'm gonna do better. Because you can't do better. What I'm saying is cast yourself on Christ and faith. Throw yourself onto the mercy seat of God and say, for the sake of Christ, receive me once again and restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, through your word, teach me what it means to consider, to consider your name to be weighty and teach me what it means to be jealous for your glory. If you are not here, if you're not a Christian this morning, you can't do that. Only God can do that. Only, only God can do that. And, and I, I strongly appeal to you to throw yourself onto Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn from your wicked ways. And turn to the perfect spotless lamb that came, that lived, died, and resurrected for his people. And right now he is, interse- he is interceding for his people. And one day he will come and all enemies will be under his feet. He will defeat every single last enemy. The last enemy, which is death. In closing, my challenge to you are these three things. Number one, don't grow lazy. We are called for more than just half-hearted worship. Our God is a great king. He is worthy of honor. He is worthy of our deepest affections and heartfelt place. Don't grow lazy. Don't, don't, don't snort at the thought of praising God or worshiping God, coming to church, reading your Bible. He is worthy of it. Number two, offer yourself as a sacrifice of praise to God. Give God every chamber of your mind, heart, soul, and strength. Don't give this world your all while only giving to God the leftover crumbs. Saints, give to God the totality of your being. And number three, pray to God that he will give you a passion and jealousy for his glory. Let's stand.